The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. And today is Friday, November the 13th, 2020. And you know, true wrestling heels never admit defeat. Always deny. We've got a lot of AEW news today coming off of the full gear pay-per-view for All Elite Wrestling. We've got pay-per-view buys, a new TV show, a new video game, tickets being sold in the COVID era, maybe a new vaccine, but definitely lots of new cases of the coronavirus throughout the U.S. Today, we will take the 20-factor test, and we will discuss the big data surrounding the new WrestleNomics research that was just published the other day about WWE Developmental. WrestleNomics Jeopardy, right here on today's program, later. All that and more. But first... Cases of the coronavirus have reached an all-time high here in the United States. What does that really mean, though? There's more testing now. So let's look at death rates. While death rates may lag behind, death rates from COVID in the United States are also on the rise, with about 1,000 people dying from COVID in each of the last three days. 1,000 dying every day. That is down, though, from the peak way back in April, where more than 2,000 people were dying in single days, according to ourworldindata.org, which gets its data from the European CDC. The record in the United States for the most, most deaths in one day from COVID was April 22nd, with more than 2,700 deaths. Again, we're at about 1,000 per day here now in the last few days in the U.S. 2,700 at the peak, 1,000 right now, but on the rise right now. In terms of deaths per capita right now, uh, the United States is actually below the United Kingdom. Death rate currently in the UK is almost double what it is in the United States. Of course, the United States' death rate is well above other countries, including Canada and Japan. The death rate in Canada right now, per capita, is about half of what it is right now in the United States. Death rate in Japan continues to be minuscule compared to the United States. Uh, 58 times worse here in the U.S. compared to Japan. 58 times worse for death rate, adjusted for, for, I almost said inflation, adjusted for population. The United States is doing 58 times worse than Japan right now. United Kingdom doing almost 100 times worse in terms of death rate compared to Japan. I pick out countries like uh, the UK, the United States, Canada, and Japan because those are countries where, at least before COVID, there was a lot of pro wrestling. Death rates in Mexico, by the way, almost equal to the United States, a little bit worse in Mexico. But let's go, let's go to our favorite state in the Union, the swing state of Florida, the home of Governor Ron DeSantis. 
And I did read the news this week that uh, according to sources like the Washington Post, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a new data analyst, an anti-mask sports blogger, an Uber driver, a conspiracy theorist, our friend, Governor Ron DeSantis. New cases are on the rise in Florida, as well as in the counties of Orange County and Duval County. Orange County, where Orlando and WWE are, and Duval County, where Jacksonville and AEW are. But what about testing? In Florida, the the positivity rate for COVID tests is also on the rise. According to data from the Florida Department of Health, their Florida COVID-19 data and surveillance dashboard, the positivity rate for the week uh, beginning November 1st, uh, positive test results were at 7%, up from 6% the week prior, which was up uh, from 5% the week before that. Those positive test result rates also trending upward in AEW's Duval County and WWE's Orange County. And what does that mean? Is there going to be a lockdown? Well, probably not in Florida. But there was news this week of a possible vaccine from the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. That news came out on Monday. WWE's stock price now trading about $2 higher uh, than it was on Friday. That is Friday of last week. As of the close of trading today, WWE's share price trading at $40.88, which is substantially better than the $36.50 it was trading at just after its last quarterly report uh, two Thursdays ago. The market capital for WWE now just over $3 billion. I suppose the stock price uh, reacting in, in part to the idea that maybe WWE will be able to return to live events and the biggest piece of revenue that that would reopen for the company would be the Saudi events, uh, which come in at $50 million in revenue each time they go there. And they are contractually uh, agreed to or obligated to go there twice a year uh, if a pandemic permits. Although I'm sure it will be months uh, at the least until there can be anything that resembles normal pro wrestling live events. That, however, has not stopped AEW from reportedly attracting 850 paying fans to their pay-per-view. Full gear last week, Saturday the 7th. That's according to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. The Observer also reporting that the pay-per-view did about 100,000 buys. So I continue to think the numbers are a little bit lower for the pay-per-view buys. I think by, uh, let's say, my, my best estimate... Uh, I think there are a very, very few number of people who know what the real numbers are. But my estimate for full year 2020 is 85,000 buys. Now, we're early on here, and the way that the pay-per-view business works is it takes a long time to know what the real numbers really are, even among the few people who know what they are. And uh, I'm usually reluctant to go just... Uh, run through a list of numbers on a podcast, but there have only been a handful of AEW pay-per-views at this point, so why not? Let's go through it for posterity. Uh, The all-in pay-per-view, which was not an AEW pay-per-view, but in many ways was the precursor event to AEW. Again, of course, not a AEW pay-per-view. That one did 45,000 buys. That was back on September 1st, 2018. The first AEW pay-per-view, Double or Nothing 2019, I believe 98,000 buys. All Out 2019, 
88,000 buys. Full Gear 2019, 75,000 buys. Revolution 2020, 90,000 buys. Double or Nothing 2020, 105,000 buys. All Out, 90,000 buys. And this most recent Full Gear 2020, 80,000 buys. So this doesn't change the order very much compared to what the Observer has published. But the high pay-per-view is Double or Nothing 2020. The low pay-per-view is Full Gear 2019, last year's Full Gear. And this year's Full Gear ahead of last year's Full Gear. By my estimation, again, 85,000 this year to last year's Full Gear of 80,000. This is like bingo night. Just calling out numbers. But 850 people paying uh, for tickets to be in attendance. Maybe about 1,000 altogether. Reportedly a $60,000 live gate. Probably the biggest audience that I'm aware of in the United States or anywhere outside of Japan since March 13th or 11th. 11th, I think it was the last time that there were uh, there was a major ticketed live event for one of the major companies. Cagematch.net ratings for this event were strong, suggesting the reception was good. People liked the pay-per-view. Uh, as it stands right now, with, with all the votes that are in at this point, I think I am ready to call it. The WrestleNomics Decision Desk is ready to make a call. And we are going to call this the second most, uh, the second best received pay-per-view in AEW's history up to this point. Uh, just short of the first one, Double or Nothing 2019, with an average, well, it's not exactly an average. It is with what Cage Match calls a total rating, because there are, there are some... I think quite smart adjustments that they make in this formula, which I will not uh, subject the listeners to right now. But the total rating for AW Double or Nothing 2019 was 9.06. That's based on 277 votes. This pay-per-view, AEW Full Gear, a rating of 8.9. So just seven points short, seven one-hundredths short of the record for AEW. That, that, uh, Rating of 8.99 is based on 193 votes from the inmates at Cage Match. And AW's president, Tony Khan, did an interview with TSN this week. TSN is the broadcaster of AW Dynamite in Canada, where he talked about the third show for AW, which will be following the two hour Dynamite and the YouTube exclusive program, AW Dark. Presumably an additional one hour of programming somewhere in the Turner Sports world. That was part of the agreement with Warner Media, part of the uh, extension on the TV deal between Warner Media and All Elite Wrestling that was made in January, upgrading AW's TV rights fees to an average annual value of about $44 million. So, anyway, about that third show, that extra one hour. Tony Khan told TSN it's going to launch in 2021. He said, quote, we've worked it out with TNT. It's 100% going to launch in 2021. I don't have an exact date yet, but I would look out for it soon. And it's right around the corner. End quote. So TNT definitely sounds like the home, the, the network where the one hour program, the additional one hour program will air. Sounds like this is not going to be just uh, AEW Dark moved on to TNT. Sounds like this will be a separate one-hour program. Uh, the big question, which is not addressed here, uh, what night 
what day will it go on? Tuesdays and Thursdays seem unlikely with the NBA there on TNT. My guess is that uh, the nights that AEW is preempted to over the summer are clues about where uh, an extra hour of AEW might end up on TNT. And on August 22nd, when AEW is preempted due to the NBA, it aired on Saturday night with a 6.30 start time, Eastern. And the program in that instance had a strong lead-in from an NBA playoff game that had just ended. But AEW Dynamite did a strong number, did a .31 in the demo, which is right in line with what it normally does on Wednesday. Uh, as, as recently as last week, uh, AEW did a .30 in the demo. Uh, the other time that it was preempted to a different night, it was aired on Thursday. Again, Thursday, I think, would be unlikely due to the NBA commitments that TNT has throughout the NBA season. So my guess would be Saturday evenings, maybe in that uh, 6 o'clock time slot, reminiscent of the old Saturday 6.05 time slot on TBS, where wrestling used to live in another era. Uh, Tony Khan, in this interview with TSN, also has some comments about uh, the pay-per-view business. He says, quote, In one year, I would love for us to do a pay-per-view event that is our biggest number yet, Khan said. Every pay-per-view we've done, we've been really happy with the number. The chart is out there. I'm not 100% sure that they're all going to be accurate, but they're pretty close. And you can see that our numbers are the best pay-per-view numbers anybody in the business has done in the last 20 years outside of WWE. Uh, End quote. There is more. But uh, it it is true that, uh, as far as I know, there has not been another pay-per-view event other than WWE. Of course, WWE has cannibalized its pay-per-view business with the WWE Network. Other companies like uh, Ring of Honor... Impact Wrestling, and even New Japan with its one uh, Wrestle Kingdom traditional pay-per-view offering back in 2016, I believe it was. Nope, 15, 2015. Anyway, all of those have done probably somewhere in the tens of the low tens of thousands in here. Uh, AEW, uh, I believe, doing the high tens of thousands, in some cases as high as 100,000. Curious and uh, unclear what the chart is that he's referring to although I would love to see it. And by the way, when it comes to a third hour of television, that is going to mean an increase in all likelihood in expenses to produce that third hour of television. Uh, As things have have gone on for the the year of 2020, uh, AEW has gotten an increase in its TV rights fees uh, while still producing only two hours and presumably once they start to do the third hour in 2021, they would still be received. They would, well, they would be getting a, a probably a guaranteed uh, escalation on, on the TV rights fees. Maybe something around 10% compared to the prior year. But it's not as if uh, AEW would get a, a additional payment for the additional hour. They're already getting that now in this year. So just to think about uh, the question which is sometimes asked to me, uh, is AEW profitable right now? I don't know. Maybe. Um, it will be more difficult to be profitable uh, in a situation where you're producing an additional program, you know, an additional hour of television that would presumably bring on uh, a substantial amount of additional expense, uh, especially if that requires some sort of separate taping. I don't know what they have in mind as far as whether it's, it's something that's going to be taped or live or it's something that's going to be taped in conjunction with the Dynamite taping which is the way that AEW Dark currently works. You know, an, an additional taping could mean a lot of money. And it's not clear to me what TNT would expect, whether they would want it to be live with the, the you know, 
increasing premium and, and desire for networks to have live sports-like content. You know, TNT would probably prefer it to be live, but I don't know if they would, would they accept a, a, a show that is taped in advance. I don't know. There obviously have been, uh, in response to the pandemic, there have been a number of taped uh, AEW Dynamite episodes that were not live. But clearly that's in an exceptional circumstance that I don't think anybody expected AEW Dynamite to be doing shows that weren't live this year, uh, back when this year started. And I, I almost wonder if AEW would, would do something like an NWA taping that we saw uh, back when, when NWA was running at the beginning of this year. And I think, I think last year, right? Would they do some sort of studio style taping that would maybe be less expensive and, and I guess I just, I certainly don't see AEW doing another arena event, uh, certainly not at this stage. And that is enormously expensive. So I don't know, it'd be interesting to see not only, you know, what, what time slot the program ends up, which is what, what sort of creative approach and what sort of production approach uh, the program has. Time and time again, we have made history. Today again, with all of you, we shall rewrite history and make history together. I give you AEW Games. So on Tuesday, AEW announced that it has entered a partnership with Ukes, a former majority owner of New Japan Pro Wrestling, by the way. But they've entered a partnership with Ukes to develop a console video game. And they are also doing two mobile games, a total of three games. So the two mobile games, uh, one AEW Casino Double or Nothing, developed by Kama Games, and AEW Elite GM, developed by Crystallized Games. This was unveiled in a, a video that was very uh, Steve Jobs, Apple-like. Uh, video game enthusiast and AEW Executive Vice President Kenny Omega is very involved, as well as referee... Aubrey Edwards, uh, also introduced, was Hideyoki Geta Iwashita, who is known for uh, working on the WWF No Mercy game, which the press release says was for fifth generation consoles, or for us laymen, the Nintendo 64. Uh, the press release indicates that the mobile games will be available first. The AEW Casino Double or Nothing game is set to launch this winter, and the AEW Elite GM game set to launch later in 2021. The casino game will feature AEW branded versions of slots, blackjack, poker, roulette, along with AEW music sounds, videos, wrestlers, uh, wrestler avatars, gift packs, and more. The AEW Elite GM game sounds very much like it's along the lines of the TEW and the EWR, Extreme Wrestling, Extreme, Extreme Warfare Revolution, excuse me, the sort of Booker Simulator games that people may have played on the PC. So AEW describes the AEW uh, Elite GM game as taking the strategic elements of simulation and fantasy games to create a competitive and engaging space for the wrestling community to take part in, incorporating the expanding AEW brand and serving as a celebration of wrestling as a whole. Fans take on the role of GM, designing a roster of wrestlers, setting up matches, and running the show to generate revenue, revenue, and hopefully net income. New fans and effects on wrestlers' stamina and morale. So obviously, this should mean some revenue for AEW. I've, uh, it's hard for me to get a sense of what it's worth uh, in, in terms of, of a number uh, for AEW. 
especially since it's not clear what uh, WWE's deals with its partners like 2K Sports are worth. But I, I do think, uh, I'm not a, a gaming expert by any means, but I, I do think there's something to the creative uh, element to a uh, EWR or TEW or this um, AW Elite GM style game. You know, taking the wrestling video game beyond just a uh, a fighting game and bringing it into this sort of creative uh, approach sounds, I don't know, more along the lines of what it sounds like the future of gaming might be. And it's not an approach that a major wrestling company has taken yet with a game, at least as far as I'm aware of. And uh, meanwhile, you know, we've had these really small, you know, seemingly one-person uh, developed games. You know, whether it's going going so far back as to TNM, uh, which was made by Oliver Kopp, and, and more recently the EWR and TW games. Speaking of games, we will be doing a special Jeopardy contest later on at the end of this program. Special WrestleNomics Jeopardy. But first, let's talk about viewership. SmackDown had one of its best numbers in a long time. Final viewership was up to 2.3 million viewers uh, with a key demo rating of 0. .0. I keep saying 0. .0. 0. 0.0. 0.7.70. Anyway, the last time SmackDown had a key demo rating that was that high was March 27th. The last time SmackDown hit a uh, 2.3 million viewers was April 10th. Pretty sure that's that's the first SmackDown after WrestleMania. So here in the pandemic era, after really going into a valley uh, through the summer, according to Dave on Observer Radio, it sounds like the show peaked at 2.5 million viewers for the Sasha Banks versus Bailey match. So SmackDown basically doing a pre kind of a pre-pandemic number. I'm looking at the looking at the list of, of ratings earlier this year, February. Uh, doing a lot, 2.4 million, or is an instance of a 2.7 million viewership on, on February 28th, doing a lot of 0.7s and 0.8s in the key demo. So much better than, than the depths that uh, Raw and SmackDown have been at uh, throughout the summer. And Raw, now well into the NFL season, uh, was up from the prior week, holding up well still uh, while going against Monday Night Football. Raw continues to seem like it's Holding up okay. It was up in a month-to-month comparison uh, from September to October. So October did better than September. Uh, November is now doing worse than October, though. More or less back down to September's levels of viewership. Uh, on Wednesday night, AW Dynamite got back on the board after everything was blown away for cable news coverage. Last week, uh, the entirety of the top 50 on Wednesday night consisted of cable news. That was the night after the election. But the AW ranking at 17, NXT ranking at 56. Uh, NXT at this point, after having a really good rating for the Halloween Havoc episode at the end of October, currently averaging 1.4 in the demo for November, which would be, if it, if it ends this way, would be the lowest average demo rating for any month so far. And the same goes for total viewership, currently averaging 610,000 viewers. This is skewed by last week going against a lot of strong competition on cable news. Uh, AEW is down slightly at this point um, in a month-to-month comparison. And now let's go to these comments from 
Alexa Bliss this week in response to a question in her appearance on the podcast, Allison Rosen is your new best friend podcast. Uh, here's a hard hitting question. Um, WWE has come, this is from Sarah Miller as well. WWE has come under fire in recent years for a stance on its wrestlers as independent contractors. Is this still the case? Do you ever feel like there is pressure to be in the ring, even if you are hurt or feeling ill? You know, WWE takes care of us 100%. You know, we all are in a contract and anything that happens inside the ring, WWE takes care of. You know, our health is 100% priority. Our health and safety is 100% priority in the company. And, you know, it's we're unfortunately we're living in the middle of a cancel culture where people try to start rumors and, you know, make their assumptions of things and you know there's never been a time where I've ever felt uncomfortable about being in the ring or have ever felt forced of being in the ring you know even when I was injured I had concussions and Vince said all right well we're gonna send you to the best specialists there are and he did and I saw concussion specialists and I they went above and beyond to take care of me and you know I know everyone feels that way Everyone feels that way. Well, today, as I record this today, it is Friday. Um, and just as I was sitting down to record this podcast, uh, WWE announced that it had come to terms on the release of Zelina Vega, wishing her the best in her future endeavors. Uh, Zelina Vega tweeting uh, just minutes before her release was announced. Uh, I, I imagine she was aware of her release at, at the point she was tweeting this. But uh, she tweeted, I support unionization. Uh, Zelina Vega had previously uh, expressed disappointment with uh, WWE's policy about uh, third-party video platforms like Twitch and Cameo. Uh, I understand she also has an OnlyFans. So I figured, why not? Let's go through the IRS 20-factor test. Uh, I, I don't know if it says anything about cancel culture in here, but let's go through the 20-factor the, the test uh, I, I'm getting this from regent.edu. Basically, the 20 questions that the Internal Revenue Service is to take into consideration in determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Of course, if you are not aware, uh, employees are required to be given uh, certain things like uh, health insurance, uh, possibly rights to paid leave, Employers are required to contribute to employees, uh, Social Security taxes, Medicare, things of that nature. But not if they're an independent contractor. You do that all by yourself. You take care of all those things by yourself. Although I do believe it is true. Any injuries that happen uh, in W's ring, W's taken care of. But let's go through the 20-factor test. And I will preface that this by saying I am not a labor expert or labor lawyer. But for the fun of it, let's go through these 20 questions and see if, if some answers appear obvious to us. Uh, I should point out two at the beginning, basically to these 20 questions, if the answer is yes, that that supports the notion that the, the worker is an employee. So yes means maybe this worker is an employee. Uh, no one question is meant to carry more weight necessarily than any other, just because we can answer yes to 
one question or a few questions doesn't necessarily mean that the worker should be classified as an employee. Instead, it is the preponderance of factors that should lead to an employee being classified as an well, a, as a worker classified as an employee. So anyway, factor number one, instructions. Is the worker required to comply with an employer's instructions about when, where, and how to work? And I think uh, W wrestlers are routinely required to be at specific venues at specific times. Uh, although wrestlers may have uh, input, their matches are or segments are generally given specific instructions. Talking segments are scripted and matches are controlled by producers. So I think the answer to question number one is yes, which supports the notion that these workers are employees. But that, that's just one, one factor. There's 19 more to go. Number two, training. Is training required? Does the worker receive training from or at the direction of the employer? That includes meetings and working with experienced employees. And this is complicated in the case of WWE. Uh, many wrestlers come to WWE with previous wrestling experience, but many WWE wrestlers attend classes at the company's performance center training facility, and they participate in developmental matches, even if they have previous experience in many cases. In fact, it's not even necessarily clear what is or isn't developmental at this point, but uh, but, but W2, uh, it sounds like they require a variety of ancillary training, everything from financial management to sexual harassment training. So I think the answer to number two is, is at, at a minimum, I think the answer is in many cases, yes. In many cases, especially wrestlers who are uh, have no prior wrestling experience, more on that later, uh, those wrestlers definitely are, are getting training in-house. So question number three, in integration, are the workers' services integrated with activities of the company? Does the success of the employer's business significantly depend upon the performance of services that the worker provides? Well, for this factor, let's go to a comment from WWE Executive Vice President Paul Avec speaking at the opening of the WWE Performance Center on July 11th, 2013. Talent is the WWE's only natural resource. Without it, we have absolutely nothing. No Raw, no SmackDown, no 150 countries watching, no 650 household viewers globally, no 80,000 people at a MetLife stadium, no 170 million people following us digitally. So there you have it. And I would say, oh, oh, go ahead, Hunter. Million viewers in the U.S. alone, no two million in pay-per-view buys. So ensuring a constant supply of fresh talent is essential. Okay. If that's not enough, uh, if you go to the SEC filings, there's always a list of risk factors. One of them uh, talks about uh, W's need to continue to retain and recruit talent. It it says, and I quote, Our success depends in large part upon our ability to recruit, train, and retain athletic performers. So I don't think there's any question about this one. Number three is yes. All right. Number four, services rendered personally. Is the worker required to perform the work personally? Uh, Wrestlers perform their key services in person, broadcast to millions of viewers globally, 
and often with uh, thousands of viewers, spectators in attendance. Uh, that's yes. Number five, authority to hire, supervise, and pay assistance. Does the worker have the ability to hire, supervise, and pay assistance? Uh, I would say uh, wrestlers may hire agents and maybe personal trainers, but they don't hire, supervise, or pay assistants who work for the company. So I think that's no. Uh, number six, continuing relationship. Does the worker have a continuing relationship with the employer? Uh, wrestlers are under contract to WWE for a specific amount of time. I think that is yes. Number seven, set hours of work. Is the worker required to follow set hours of work? Uh, wrestlers are required to work at a specific time in order to appear at live events and television broadcasts. I think that one's yes as well. Number eight, full-time work required. Does the worker work full-time for the employer? Uh, wrestlers who work for WWE often spend most of their week working, traveling to venues, or participating in other activities like personal appearances or, or just uh, working on their, their physical appearance and physical fitness in specific support of their work. The answer is yes. This is a full-time job. Number nine, place of work. Does the worker perform work on the employer's premises and use the company's office equipment? Uh, wrestlers perform mainly at venues that WWE has leased specifically for the purpose of operating events or, or training, in the case of the Performance Center. Uh, wrestlers perform the work largely in rings that are owned by WWE. And they record talking segments, and participate in other kinds of productions uh, using equipment that belongs to the company. Or they don't really use the equipment, but they are, they are filmed and things like that using the equipment that belongs to the company. The answer is yes. Number 10, sequence of the work. Does the worker perform work in a sequence set by the employer? Does the worker follow a set schedule? Uh, wrestlers perform in matches, let's see, that are part of WWE's touring or in these pandemic times, just it's, it's television schedule. Uh, WWE wrestlers don't exactly get to book their own dates or make their own schedule. The answer is yes. So we are now at the halfway point and, on, and on my response to so far 80 of these questions is a definitive yes. We got one no and one on the training question. I say in many cases, yes. May, may, arguably in all cases, but let's, let's be generous. Number 11, reporting obligations. Does the worker submit regular written or oral reports to the employer? And I think this one's a no. I'm not aware of uh, any kind of reporting obligations, written or oral, that could, I don't know, even be construed as, as, a, as a report. So let's say no to that one. Number 12, Method of payment. How does the worker receive payments? Are the payments regular amounts at set intervals? And this is a more complicated one. So wrestlers are paid a minimum guarantee, which is often referred to as the downside, as their downside. But their compensation varies uh, depending on additional fees for performances at specific events and royalties for merchandise sold under the wrestler's likeness. Performance fees vary depending on the company's judgment about how important the wrestler was to a given event and royalties vary depending on merchandise sales. So the impression I get is that that variance in pay 
that you could argue exists relative to the royalties on merchandise and the, the fees that WWE gives you, depending on the type of event and how important uh, someone judges that you were to the event. So less for a house show, more for a pay-per-view, less for a, a, an undercard person, more for a main eventer. That maybe is more independent contractor-like. But the downside, the guaranteed downside is employee-like. So let's call this one 50-50. Number 13, payment of business and travel expenses. Does the worker receive payment for business and travel expenses? So WWE will pay for the wrestler's flights, is our understanding. Uh, flights that are required for work beyond a limited distance. I'm under the impression if it's under a certain number of miles, you're driving there. If it's over a number of certain miles, you are flying there and the company is paying for the flight. So in many cases, WWE flies the talent from their home to the first venue or the first city where the venue is located and the wrestler gets a rental car and drives around to the various venues after that, pays for wrestler's own lodging, and then gets flown back home. So WWE is paying for some of the travel, but wrestlers are paying for their own uh, rental car expenses, their own lodging expenses, their own food expenses, and any other needs that they have while they're traveling. You know, for professional wrestlers, that includes things like gym membership fees and um, tanning, fee, tanning fees. So I would say that that's like a mostly yes. Three quarters yes. Number 14. Furnishing of tools and materials. Does the worker rely on the employer for tools and materials? Well, what are the tools and materials for a wrestler? And I think that's a really ambiguous one. Uh, there's ring gear, and and I actually don't know. if uh, I think in many cases the wrestlers are paying for their own gear, but then we hear about how there's seamstresses and things like that uh, who, who make gear at the venue for the wrestler. So I'm not sure how that all works. If you could justify that the tools are the ring, certainly uh, the wrestler relies on the employer for that material. The wrestler relies on uh, the company for all of the, the production equipment. The wrestlers are certainly not providing that. So let, let's call this one 50-50. Uh, number 15, investment. Has the worker made an investment in the facilities or equipment used to perform the services? Uh, in the way that we typically think about facilities or equipment, I don't think so. The, the wrestler is certainly not investing in the, in the production or ring materials. Uh, I don't know if you could argue that uh, the, the, the physical body <laughs> is, uh, is a facility or a piece of equipment. As mentioned, there's the ring attire, which the wrestler probably generally buys for themselves. But uh, let's be charitable to W's case here and say no. Number 16, risk of loss. Is the payment made to the worker on a fixed basis regardless of profitability or loss? And I'm not quite sure how to read that. In WWE's defense, you could say no. Wrestlers are paid depending on the success of the event. And I'm not sure if that's what is meant by profitability or loss. Wrestlers get downsides, uh, even if a live event isn't profitable. I believe wrestlers are being are being paid a fee for the the live event. So, considering the downside, and considering I think they always get fees, even if a house show is a, is a money loser, 
Well, I'll say yes to this one. Number 17, working for more than one company at a time. Does the worker only work for one employer at a time? Uh, and that is, in almost all cases, yes. Uh, wrestlers uh, cannot, at least not without permission from the, the company, cannot work for any other wrestling company. Uh, there are some exceptions like the NXT UK contracts where those wrestlers are able to take independent bookings. But that is the exception. So the answer here is yes. I guess un unless you're an NXT UK wrestler who's taking indie bookings, the answer is yes. Number 18, availability of services to the general public. Are the services offered to the employer by the wrestler, by the worker, unavailable to the general public? So are they unavailable to the general public? And, and actually, the, the closest thing that I can think of as far as a service that a wrestler provides being available to the general public would be cameo. <laughs> but uh, members of the general public do not conduct wrestling events usually. I guess you could decide to be a wrestling promoter, but a person who decides to be a wrestling promoter uh, cannot obtain the services of wrestlers who are under contract to WWE. And when it comes to things like cameo or other video platforms, WWE has recently restricted the use of those services by their wrestlers. So the answer here is yes. Number 19, there's two, there's two more to go. Right to discharge. Can the worker be fired by the employer? And the answer is yes. W can fire wrestlers at any time, including today. As people know, there is usually a 90-day non-compete clause that prevents the wrestler from going and working for another wrestling company uh, within 90 days of the release. So presumably Zelina Vega cannot work for another wrestling company for another 90 days from today. But the answer is yes. Number 20, the final, final question. Right to quit. Can the worker quit work at any time without liability? The answer is no. Wrestlers have a great deal of difficulty learning, leaving the company in advance of the term of their contracts. WWE may even add time to the wrestler's contracts equivalent to the duration of of the time in which a wrestler was unable to perform due to injury. I think some wrestlers like uh, Daniel Bryan and Rey Mysterio and Luke Harper, now known as Brody Lee, have experienced things like this. Where WWE has added time to the end of their contracts commensurate with the time that they were injured and unable to perform. But that answer is no, meaning they are less like an, an employee since the answer is no. So anyway, to review the 20 factor test, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 that are a definite yes, and an additional four that are in sort of a maybe gray area, and four that are a definitive no. So again, 12 yes, four maybe, four no in terms of asking the question, is this an employee? And again, I don't know, I'm not a labor lawyer or expert, but that, that seems like a preponderance of yes answers, leading me to believe W wrestlers are generally misclassified as independent contractors when they should be properly, legally classified as employees and therefore be entitled to the same uh, benefits that employees are entitled to generally, including medical insurance, tax benefits, paid leave, and so on.
So let's talk about the article that is on russellomics.com right now, uh, which everyone can read for free, ad-free, entitled W Developmental Analysis in the Performance Center Era and Beyond. So this is something that I've been been talking about here and there and I've been working on for months uh, with a great deal of help from Matt Schroeder, uh, who is actually a neuroscience PhD, who used Python to scrape all of the data from the cagematch.net database and uh, make it available for us in two gigantic Excel files with millions of cells. I think there's like 2 million cells, something like that. Or if it's not 2 million, it's something like 1.4 million cells. And, and, and we really had to engage the entire database, or at least all of it uh, from the year 2000 and onward, because we wanted to consider how much non-WB experience all of these wrestlers had. Now, of course, one of the caveats here in, throughout this data is that the cage match data, it, it probably is a complete or very, very close to complete record of, of WE matches, but is not a complete record of non-WE matches, especially independent wrestling, especially some of the more obscure, lesser known independent wrestling companies. It's pretty good about the more prominent ones, but there are plenty of matches uh, that just don't get accounted for because they're not part of uh, you know, an event that Cage Match finds results of however they find results and gets entered into the database. That said, I th- Cage Match seems to be the most complete database that there is, at least in terms of modern wrestling, which is uh, what we're concerned with here. And and obviously that, that data is very useful for considering... A, you know, sort of an endless uh, um, amount of other questions. And if you've been seeing me tweet a lot of information lately, looking at a, a variety of questions like uh, what percentage of, of a given promotion's uh, matches in a year are DQ finishes and things like that. Uh, these are questions that I'm able to look into because of this huge uh, cage match database. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, "Ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're you you know what I mean? Like you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, oh, hey, look at some random cards, or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards. It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. 
But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Converted into an Excel file that we now have on hand. So really what happened here is I was putting off uh, writing something about this. I was procrastinating and... um, but then this issue came up with Rich from the Voices of Wrestling, and I shared some information that I had from this study with him uh, that had not really been made public, and they were discussing it. I understand they're, they're, they talked about it or were talking about this subject and referencing some of this data on the Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast, which is now out, which I have not listened to yet because I, I, I will listen to it, but I will listen to it after I record this because I do not want to uh, have my thoughts uh, uh, affected by potential groupthink here among the members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. I want to ensure that you, the listener, are, are the beneficiaries of independent thought. So, so I don't know uh, what conclusions Rich and or Joe came to based on the information that I shared with them. But anyway, this compelled me to finally put something together and publish it which I did in a hurry too. I, 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 so I wish, uh, you know, people should, uh, bug me about more things and, uh, it'll motivate me to quickly write articles like I did on, was this Thursday afternoon? I think anyway, I, what I think are the sort of hot issues around this, the questions that people want answered, uh, that are adjacent to this kind of data is people want to know. So here we are seven years into the performance center. What is the performance center worth it? Has it been worth it? And we're not going to get a clean answer to that, at least not today. I mean, you or I may have intuitions about that. First of all, I don't know. It's not clear to me what the cost of the performance center is. It's clearly large. I mean, it's, it's an entire work center with many trainers and various staff and personnel. I did go into a some of the, the old trending schedules to look at the corporate and other line and, and see if I could 
you know, see any, any difference in the seasonality to see if we could say, Oh, okay. In the first full quarter with the performance center, which I think would be Q4 2013, was there a big jump that was sustained and seems to still be there, you know, forever more after that point. And it's not clear to me, uh, what, what that difference would be. Um, and it, and it may very well have been a cost that, uh, gradually you know, you know, grew over time as more, uh, trainers and personnel and more expenses were put into it. Um, I, I, th- I think a point that Mookie has raised at, at times on our previous episodes was that, uh, for whatever you can say about whether or not the performance center and whether NXT have actually been more effective at developing talent, uh, the performance center is a good recruiting tool. It is, it's probably easier to recruit, uh, attractive talent, great athletes into something like the performance center, as opposed to saying that we're going to sign you and send you to a warehouse in Louisville. So there is that, um, another key issue that people talk about around this topic are, well, who are the people who have, you know, been trained from scratch at the performance center? And I can tell you who those people are. At least I, I, in terms of I can tell you who, who are the, the, the people who have been trained from scratch at the Performance Center who have now had a run on the main roster. The benchmark I'm using here as a proxy for main roster promotion is you've had at least 10 main roster matches. Uh, there may or may not be better benchmarks to set, but that seems to be a, a, at least a decent one. You know, you're having, you've had 10 main roster matches. So you've not just had a few. If you've had 10, you've probably are, have had or are on your way to having many more. And, and in this study, by the way, we looked at a number of other uh, data points for each wrestler as well, which we'll get into some of them here. But anyway, by my count, we've got 21 wrestlers who, were, who, ha- who came to the Performance Center. Uh, and by came to the Performance Center, I'm, I'm saying... I know the Performance Center was opened, I believe, July 11th, 2013. I'm starting the clock on January 1st, 2014 to account for the notion that I think everybody who started at the very beginning of the Performance Center had already been in W Developmental and had already been a part of FCW Florida Championship Wrestling uh, before the opening of the Performance Center. So when it comes to the date of your first, or I'm sorry, of your 10th main roster match, I'm starting that at, I'm counting everybody after, on or after January 1st, 2014. So somebody like Charlotte Flair, who in fact had her first WWE developmental match on June 20th, 2013, before the Performance Center opened. Nonetheless, she had her 10th main roster match on January 31st, 2015. So that's within our timeline here. And we're going to consider her a uh, performance center person. So anyway, the, the 21 are Charlotte Flair, Baron Corbin, Braun Strowman, Mojo Rawley, Enzo Amore, Lana, Dana Brooke. This is in order of the date that you had your 10th main roster match, by the way. Uh, Lana, Dana Brooke, Jason Jordan, Alexa Bliss, Carmella, Nia Jax, Riddick Moss, Liv Morgan, uh, Mandy Rose, Sonia Deville, Razar, Ockham, Ronda Rousey, Lacey Evans, Tucker Knight, and Bianca Belair. Really, 
uh, we should probably include Montez Ford and and Angelo Dawkins, the Street Profits, but they had some Evolve matches. Even though, yes, Evolve was kind of a WWE affiliate at that time. And yes, this is something we discussed as we were uh, going through the data and figuring out how we were going to do this a- analysis. Should, should Evolve be considered WWE at this point? This was something that was discussed. We decided no, though. But an- another way that we could slice this data, though, is, is look at the percentage of your among your match count. Here are all the matches that you had before your 10th main roster match and ask what percentage of those matches happened in non-WB places. So for somebody like Kevin Owens or Finn Balor, that percentage is very high. For Charlotte Flair, that percentage is zero. For Baron Corbin, that percentage is zero. So to account for these people who are really close, like Angela Dawkins and Montez Ford, we can say, let's let's say who's got less than 5%. And if we look at who's got less than 5%, then to that list of 21 wrestlers who are totally pure, we can then add on an additional seven people. And that is that includes Rusev, Colin Cassidy, who, uh, big cast, yeah. Uh, Montez Ford, Wesley Blake, Angela Dawkins, Aiden English, and Otis. He's just known as Otis now, right? Otis... Dozovic. Is that how it was said? I don't know. But anyway, and that brings the total number to 28. 28 wrestlers who are strongly pure PC projects. Seven years, 28 wrestlers, about four wrestlers a year who, you know, are are wrestlers who are strongly pure PC projects and who made it to the main roster. Meanwhile, over the same time period, uh, you've got 83 wrestlers who had at least 5% or more of their pre-10th main roster match experience happened outside of WWE. And, and by the way, this is only for people who have had their 10th main roster match from the year 2014 to the present. You should really, you should really go to the article and you can see the table here. I know this is complicated, but there's a vast spectrum uh, between... You know, any, anywhere from 11% to 100%. You got people down on the low end of, of uh, pre-WB experience like Velveteen Dream, Chad Gable, Scott Dawson, Noah Jose. Now, possibly due to the incompleteness of the cage match database, you even got people on the low end like Bailey, who probably has quite a few indie matches that are just not in the cage match database. All the way to people way on the other end at 100% like Spud, Tony Storm, Spud. Cage Match is is deferring to some of the the older previous names. Drake Maverick, uh, Tony Storm, James Drake, Mike Bennett, Pete Dunne, James Ellsworth, Arya Davari, Drew Gulak, Tony Nese, TJP, Carl Anderson, AJ Styles. Of course, AJ Styles and Carl Anderson are, are the exceptions. These are the people who went straight to the main roster with no time in developmental at all. So that's just the beginning. Uh, everybody was identified as far as what was your primary W developmental system. So we know who had most of their developmental at Deep South, who had most of their developmental at, at HWA, at NXT, at FCW, and so on. Of course, those were all uh, developmental territories for different amounts of time, so it's hard to compare them one to one. But maybe there's ways to adjust for that. Just something I've been messing around with. Uh, just today. 
So we'll see how that goes. There, there don't seem to be uh, any outstanding uh, relationships between like, did people who had more indie experience go on to be more successful wrestlers, whatever that might mean. Um, it's really hard, uh, as I say in the article, to measure what success is or what talent, good talent is. Ultimately, what happens when you get to the main roster is largely decided by uh, the key decision makers in WWE, like Vince McMahon. And I'm of the opinion that Vince McMahon uh, squanders a lot of the potential that talent has and undermines their strengths rather than accentuates them and misevaluates a lot of talent. But remarkably, what we do see from, uh, between the year 2000 and the year 2019 is uh, as far as who are the wrestlers who make it to the main roster or have their 10th main roster match? Do these wrestlers have the majority of their experience within W Developmental or pre-WWE in, in terms of being on the indies or whatever? Uh, what we see is the, the non-WWE people, what we call the non-universe people, that's that's very high. It's a very high portion of the wrestlers who make it to the main roster in the year 2000. And then that number gets a little bit slower, gets a little bit smaller as the years go on, right up to peaking in, in or should I say, uh, whatever the opposite of peaking is in 2010, when only 21% of the wrestlers who made it to the main roster in that year, uh, only 21% of them had the majority of their experience outside of WWE and 79% of them had the majority of their experience within WWE Developmental. And then that trend, uh, not perfectly, but that, that trend starts to turn around to the point where in, in 2019, that, that number was uh, 33% of the wrestlers who made it to the main roster had the majority of their experience in WWE Developmental. And likewise, 67% of the wrestlers who made it to the main roster had the majority of their experience outside of WWE Developmental. And I would suggest that these trends have something to do with who was uh, in charge of developmental at that time with you know, Jim Ross being in charge of developmental at the beginning of this timeline in 2000. Of course, he goes back even further than that. But he's in charge of developmental, I think, until 2005. And uh, John Laurinaitis gets greater uh, in in influence and control and uh, until about 2012. And that's when Paul Levesque takes over. And Paul Levesque seems to have a kind of a similar approach to John Laurinaitis in terms of valuing people who have an athletic background and, and no wrestling experience above people who do have wrestling experience. Maybe seeing wrestling experience even as a negative, as, as far as seeing it as something that uh, brings with it bad habits that people have to be, you know, unlearned on. But then somewhere around 2014, Paul Levesque apparently has a change in philosophy and begins to value independent wrestlers more. There's also more competition for independent talent and a ton more independent talent gets signed to NXT and the NXT brand becomes this strong touring brand uh, relative to simply being a developmental territory before that. So that's the developmental project, just a, an introduction of it. Maybe it'll be more more articles, maybe more tweets about it in the future. You can read that again at WrestleNomics.com. And now, without further ado, we will go to this special presentation in tribute of the late Alex Trebek. Uh, we will go to this special presentation of WrestleNomics Jeopardy. I didn't prepare my really uncomfortable tidbit for 
questioning later by Alex Trebek. So our, our contestant today is a, a, another correspondent here at Russell Alex headquarters, Kate Carney. Hello. Best known for uh, her podcast, Hot Takes with Kate. <laughs> Coming soon to uh, the Russell Alex Patreon at the uh, $265 million a year tier. That's the Patreon contribution required to hear me just get like real mad about things that are on TV. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and all of your takes about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, so are you ready to play Wrestling Alex Jeopardy? We will find out. Math mm-hmm. has never been my strong suit. Do you have an awkward anecdote to tell me at the halftime show? I'll work on it. Okay. <laughs> First, for $200. For $200. What's the- is there a category? The, there are no categories. Oh, never mind. For $200. For $200. WrestleNomics is the category. NBC Universal's parent company also provides cable television services through its brand Xfinity. The parent, um, AT&T. No, sorry. What is wrong. AT&T? That's incorrect. Uh-oh. Uh, the correct answer is Comcast. Okay, oh, so remember, we have, to, we have to keep score here. You're at negative 200. I misunderstood the... Okay. You're at negative 200. Wait, Comcast owns NBC? Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. For $400, extract the data. Oh, no. That's what will happen if an online database allows you to download this punctuation-using file. Punctuation-using file? Dot CSV. That is correct. Is it really? <laughs> what does CSV stand for? Oh, comma separated values. That is correct. <laughs> do I get bonus money? So you're now at 200 positive. Okay. Is somebody going to do the write this down? Or am I just going to do it in my head? I don't know. All right. The next clue is for $600. $600. If the answer is yes... To preponderance of Internal Revenue Service's 20-factor test, a professional wrestler might more appropriately be classified as this as opposed to an independent contractor. What is an employee? That is correct. <laughs> so you're now at... Can you throw me a pen or something? I'll, I'll have to write this down. So you are now at... Positive $800. Good. Okay, so you say, you say you're not good at math. Now you're at 800 the next clue is for $800. Okay. When it comes to demographics, mm-hmm. television and film business data resource website showbuzzdaily.com ranks the top the, the, excuse me, ranks the daily top 150 cable original programs by this key category. This almost feels like a trick question because I don't think that Jeopardy would do this, but I'm going to say what is demo? Can you be more specific? What is key demographic? What is the key demographic? That's what I just said. I'm looking for something more specific. Then what is the key demographic? What is 18 to 35? Eh, no. We're, <laughs> sorry, we were looking for P18 to 49. Oh, okay. You are back to zero. Okay. Whatever. The next... I didn't want to be on Jeopardy anyway, Alex. The next clue is for $1,000. And the clue is, this former WWE co-president is a first-generation Cuban-American. He works at the New York Times company, 
and HBO before going to work for Vince McMahon. Who is George Barrios? That is correct. That was for what, a thousand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you're at you're at positive one thousand. The next clue is for two hundred dollars. Okay, new category then. <laughs> yeah, there's no categories, but yeah. Before he was hired by WWE, the company's current president and chief revenue officer helped close deals with NBC Universal and Fox in 2018. No relation to AEW's Tony. Who is Khan? Under under standard Jeopardy rules, I guess I have to accept that. You have to accept it. <laughs> Alex Trebek would have accepted it. Yes. Yeah. They wouldn't write the the, the clue that way though. No, they would not. No. All right. Uh, you're at twelve hundred. <laughs> Barely, because please don't ask me for the first name. What is it? Uh, Nick Khan. Nick. Okay, would not have gotten that. Yeah. The next clue is for four hundred dollars. Uh, that's a repeat. So let's, let's pretend that didn't happen. This next clue is for six hundred dollars. Okay. According to a WrestleNomics estimate, WWE gets about five, uh, fifty million in, million dollars in revenue every time it holds a major event in service of this nation's authoritarian government. Where is Saudi Arabia? That is correct. That was for 400, right? Six. 600. You're at 2,000. Okay. The next clue is for $800. Okay. In addition to a wrestling company, mm-hmm. a football company, mm-hmm. and an auto parts company, mm-hmm. the family that owns All Elite Wrestling also owns this NFL team. Separate from a football company? So the football in this clue refers to soccer. Oh, got it. Okay. Uh, what are the Jaguars? That is correct. What was that, 800? Can go back here. Eight hundred. It was. It was for eight hundred. You're not twenty eight hundred in the positive. Uh, the next clue is for one thousand dollars. Okay. In 2019, Impact Wrestling's parent company, Anthem Sports and Entertainment, acquired this network. Shortly after, it was no longer the U.S. TV home of New Japan Pro Wrestling. What is access? That is correct. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that was a real shot in the dark. 3,800. Okay, you're up to 3,800. Okay. Now it's a daily double. You can wager everything up to $3,800. Mm-hmm. But I don't know the category. There is no category. I, I no, but that's the, the strategy the, I would use in a traditional Jeopardy daily double. The category I is, will wager is 1500 Fifteen hundred on the daily double. Okay, and here's the clue. In 2020, Uh-oh. this Dutchman announced on his blog on njpw.co.jp that he would be leaving the company. He was currently serving as president and CEO. New Japan Pro Wrestling. Is that your final answer? Yes. That is incorrect. <laughs> uh, the correct answer is Harold May. Uh, so what's three thousand? Why is it on the New Japan blog? That's where he, he he announced it. Uh, you know, he has a blog on the official website, and uh, he said he's no longer going to be uh, you know working as the CEO of the company. Uh, also, who is it? This Dutchman applies that the question is who is it? What's the question? Am I supposed to say where he was or who he is? Correct response would be who is Harold May. Oh, I was trying to tell you which company he was leaving, being president of. Okay, would you have known that one? Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you are now at twenty three hundred. Okay. Ambiguously worded question. Maybe. For two hundred dollars, this 
is Stephanie McMahon's corporate title at WWE. What is the chief brand officer? That is correct. You are now at $2,500 for $400. Mm-hmm. After the passing of her father, Paco, oh, no. she became one of the first women to work as the chief executive of a major professional wrestling company. Can I tell you the company instead? <laughs> you can, but I won't give you points for okay, it. Okay, what, uh, what, is, what is CMLL? That, that is correct, oh, but that no, is not the answer we're looking for. Any guesses? It's CMLL. That was my guess. That was the big piece of knowledge that I had. That is incorrect. It is Sophia Alonso. Who is Sophia Alonso is the, the answer that we were looking for. How much was that for? Was that for 400 I think? Now we're down to 2100 The next clue is for $600. While its roots arguably trace back to such spectacles as the White Castle of Fear, 2020 brought us many matches that required neither a live audience or a wrestling ring collectively known as this genre. <laughs> um, see, this one I really do know and I'm just having a blank and I'm really upset about it. If I were on Jeopardy, I'd be one of those contestants that was like visibly panicking behind their eyes. Like you're buzzing in, but then not. Yeah, but then I go, ah, after I've been buzzed. Mm-hmm. Um, what is... A cinematic match. We'll accept that. Uh, That's correct. So 600 plus, now you're at 2,700. We will accept it. What were you looking for? What was your answer? Cinematic wrestling. Cinematic matches. Cinematic Cinematic was was the thing. (laughs) Skin of my teeth. Skin of my teeth. Next clue for $800. World Wrestling Entertainment introduced this drug testing policy soon after the untimely passing of Eddie Guerrero. Where they call their their drug testing policy is what we're looking for there. Oh, um, what is a wellness test? That is correct. Uh, that's good enough. The wellness policy. I was like, what is what is their drug testing? I was so confused. Okay, I understand now. Thirty five hundred. This is the same problem that I have in traditional Jeopardy too, where I just have a hard time understanding the question that they're asking. Next for one thousand dollars. Okay. Whether you believe the attendance was ninety three thousand one hundred and seventy nine. Or 78,500. This wrestling super event was held at the Pontiac Silverdome in 1987. This is asking me to remember a number because I have to know which mania it was. And if I get it wrong, I feel like I'm going to get kicked out of wrestling. Is it WrestleMania 3? That is correct. Oh my God. (laughs) That was so stressful. You're up to 4,000. Coming, Ken Jennings. The next clue for 1200 WWE announced the attendance for this event was 101,763, but the Arlington Police Department told Brandon Thurston the actual count of attendees was 80,709. That's a really big discrepancy. Um, I assume it's another WrestleMania. Let's say 27. That's not correct. Okay. 32 is the correct answer. All right. Do you think I was I was emailing the uh, what 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 year would be WrestleMania twenty seven? I have absolutely okay. no idea. Okay. So that was for twelve hundred. You're asking me to do math in the thousands. Yeah. So now you're at twenty eight hundred. Okay. Okay. The next clue for fourteen hundred. Well, we're in double jeopardy. Yeah. World Wrestling Entertainment's independent contractors thought they were getting rich in twenty twenty 
on this Amazon-owned video service until Vince McMahon threatened wrestler streamers with termination. What is Twitch? That is correct. Back in the game. Okay. 4,200? Hmm? 40, no, 44. The next lose for $1,600 before joining WWE as Chief Financial Officer in 2020. Christina Salen held the same title for this online realtor of handmade goods. What is Etsy? That is correct. <laughs> that was for 1600 right? So you are now at 6000 Okay. And now it's time for Final Jeopardy. Okay. Do I have to pick a wager? What do I have now? The category is yeah. television ratings. Right. What's my... You currently have $6,000. Okay. Um... Television ratings. Oh boy! Uh, so I'm gonna wager one one thousand dollars. Wager one thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Okay. And the clue is, this E Network reality series fifth season in 2020 averaged a 0.22 rating in the P18 to 49 demographic. That's higher than WWE NXT's 0.17 rating over the same 11 weeks. Uh, what is Total Bellas? Uh, you wagered how much? A thousand. A thousand. Six thousand dollars. So now you're at, you have seven thousand dollars. Excellent. Does that so, make me the reigning WrestleNomics champion? Well, the, if there are uh, future uh, editions of WrestleNomics Jeopardy, that is the high score to beat. Seven thousand dollars. What are you going to do with your winnings? Um, you can send them to me directly via PayPal. Yeah. Um, anyone else is also free to send me money directly via PayPal. Um, and I will spend it on snacks. Now, here at the WrestleNomics headquarters, when I have uh, suggested the idea of using PayPal, mm-hmm. I have uh, at times been ridiculed yes. as 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 that indicating that I am old yes. for using PayPal. Right. I only said PayPal because I'm talking to you specifically. For the general public, I would say Venmo, please. Is uh, do younger people use Ven- Venmo? Is that what's happening? Here? Yes. Is that true? Is that if we if we had a pie chart that showed the market share, uh-huh. U- United States yeah. globally, mm-hmm. or only United States especially? I would say the only people that use PayPal are those that could be marked in a pie chart as fearful of change. Any final WrestleNomics thoughts? Any, any any analysis? What's what's the, the the talk among the other correspondents here at WrestleNomics headquarters about the business as it stands today? Um, thank you for asking. I feel like that's a really broad question. If I could get you to come back with more specific, oh, you put your microphone down. You're not <laughs> uh, Nikki Bella. Uh, what's her case for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? Um, put her in it. Uh, m- make the case. Well, f- okay. Um, for people that don't know, what are the what are the criteria? What are the criteria? The major, three major criteria are yes. drawing power, mm-hmm. uh, in-ring wrestling ability, sure. and historical influence. Mm-hmm. There's also some language in the instructions about longevity and how somebody with a long run should be more valued than somebody who had a, a short run of only a few years. Okay, point one, drawing power. We answered this in our own final Jeopardy question. Um, her and her sister's fifth season of their reality show did better than NXT or AEW. No, they did not do better than AEW. You said that to me earlier today. But that's not true. 
Okay, you were an untrustworthy <laughs> but it, correspondent. But it did, I, I was just speaking off the top of my head, but okay. they did do better than NXT. And that's saying something, doing better than NXT, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and not so, just... Not just so uh, you could say that Nikki Bella is a better wrestler than everyone on NXT. That's what I just heard you say, according to demographics math. Well, it's been <laughs> and how you, uh, how you determine who's a better wrestler. But, and, and this is key demo. Um, right. I think that the total audience might be closer. I don't know, but but the key demo is what... Right. But, okay, so... What people say matters, you know? So there's there's that aspect, right? There's She is on a show that admittedly isn't a wrestling show, but does better than many wrestling shows do. That says something for her drawing power. Um, the second aspect is wrestling ability. I don't think a lot of people argue that Nikki Bella is a bad wrestler. I think she is notoriously one of the wrestlers that improved greatly over her career, um, which also I think ties into longevity. She transitioned from the divas era of wrestling into the more modern women's revolution. If you will, she didn't last very long in the women's revolution era of wrestling, but she did transition into it. She was able to hold her own. She did more than one era of wrestling in WWE. And then if you're talking about like historical influence, I think this is the category where she's really strong in part because of her time on reality shows, Total Divas and Total Bellas. I know that, that this is a personal anecdote, which not everyone that's voting in the uh, Hall of Fame would apply to themselves. But um, I know from personal experience that for many years when I told people, oh, yes, I am a professional wrestler, they would respond to me by saying, like in the mud... Or like Jello, and I would have to go back and explain the genre that I was even talking about. The the what? Jean. And um, after Total Divas and Total Bellas became a thing, I would say, "Oh, I'm a professional wrestler," and they would say, "Oh, like the Bella Twins." So like they brought the concept of professional wrestling at large and women wrestling specifically out into the wider cultural significance. Mm -hmm. And additionally, within wrestling, some historical impact is like, I know people personally that got into wrestling and not just as fans, but as wrestlers, they went to a wrestling school and signed up for wrestling training and do shows and, and went to Japan because they loved Nikki Bella. Nikki Bella made them be a wrestler and now they're out there being a wrestler, making more wrestling fans. And like that is historical significance. Yeah, I, th I think her her case for historical significance is the strongest. Um, the case for drawing power, I think, hinges on, are we considering reality TV series as part of pro wrestling in this particular Hall of Fame? At, at Do least? they have WrestleMania by quarter hour? WrestleMania? Yeah. No. That... You, you want, like, no. I mean... Um, I want viewership by quarter hour but, for WrestleMania. But but WrestleMania is, is going to be a largely all-or-nothing viewing experience, right? Because you have it on the network or, or you're buying it as a pay-per-view. I don't think people are watching part of WrestleMania. I would wager and, that many girlfriends walked out of the room <laughs> after she became engaged to John Cena... They were like, thank you, I got what I came for, and I am done with this show now. Okay. Well, N Nielsen is not uh, measuring WrestleMania in any form. I am. But, uh, okay. <laughs> um, Tell me I'm wrong. 
what? You, you may be right. I um, saw a news article about the relationship between Nikki Bella and John Cena today. Today. As to whether or not he had reached out to her regarding the birth of her baby. It's and, still news. And that tells us something about drawing power. Yeah. About generating revenue for a wrestling company. It tells us something about interest. Drawing of attention. Mm-hmm. She draws attention towards the world of wrestling. Whether or not she's personally making extra money for WWE at this second, I don't well, care. She's drawing attention toward the industry. Yeah. Well, in, in addition to so the, these Total Divas and Total Bellas shows that the Bella Twins were arguably the biggest, I mean, probably without doubt, the biggest stars. Absolutely. Of, right? um, they, Although Natalie Eve Marie did go on to be on Celebrity Big Brother. They, um, they did... They did decent ratings, and and I think there's I haven't dug deeply into this, but I think there's a good argument there uh, that they attracted a female audience to Raw and SmackDown that was not present before. Um, and in terms of like real revenue, you know these these reality series, um, it's hard to unpack uh, what WWE is getting paid for them, but it's like I, I think it's somewhere around. The entire, there's three series, right? Total Divas, Total Bellas, Ms. and Mrs. I think those series are worth somewhere around 20 to $30 million of annual revenue. I'm not going to lie. For the company. I entirely forgot that Ms. and Mrs. exists until just this second. Does that enhance Ms. and Maurice, <laughs> Maurice's case for the Hall of Fame? Ms. Ms. Will, will Ms. be on the, the ballot someday? Yes. He's, he's probably old enough now to be on the ballot. I don't know that he's ever going to be on the ballot. I think he might be on the ballot after he retires. He's, he's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of longevity there. There's a lot no of question. longevity. Yeah. I mean, I like him. Okay. Uh, wrestling ability for Nikki Bella. Yep. Uh, what are some, if I was considering this case uh, and I wanted to sit down and watch at least a few Nikki Bella matches, what would be some, what would be some Nikki Bella, what, is, what were the best of Nikki Bella matches that I need to sit down and watch? Yeah, sure. I will just go to my brain Rolodex of every match that's happened by date that I have memorized. But, I don't know. Just yeah. watch some stuff. Yeah. Like, don't hold her to the standard of her first year of wrestling, because we don't hold anyone to that standard. What, what, that's what not are, fair. What are some but, great, what are the best Nikki Bella matches? <laughs> As if I could tell you anyone's best. I can't tell you my best matches to go and watch. I don't... That's not how my brain works. I can't tell you a single match that happened on a particular show. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not a one. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't know. Just go watch your stuff from, like, not her first year and, like, not her last year because she was sort of a part-timer at the very end there. And it never feels fair to hold anyone to their part-timer status either. But just, like, anything in the... In the middling, like not that WrestleMania one, because we all know that match wasn't great. The, the tag match with yeah, the it was it was awkward. But like, I'd say anything right before that. Give it a watch. Let's find out. Okay. Uh, the first episode of Hot Takes with Kate will be me watching a series of Nikki Bella matches and then immediately regretting my decision to back her for the <laughs> Hall of Fame. Did she ever wrestle Ronda Rousey? I hope not. Because I feel like that—that's a big match that could have happened. It may have. I have wiped every Ronda Rousey match out of my brain entirely. Wow. I hope she's not listening. Sandy Hook happened. You're a monster. Thank you for your time, Ronda. Well, that's all we have for this week on (laughs) WrestleMania Jeopardy. (laughs) 